Released on Sunday, September 27th, 2015. This Agile Life, episode 101. Don't make mud. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today, we have two great hosts to go along with this episode. First up is Lee McCauley. Um, how? Okay. Then that's why there's three hosts, because you said two great hosts, and uh, that must be you and Amos. No, 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 Lee. That's you, and unfortunately, Amos as well, but it's you and me, Lee, and Amos is the non-great host. Man, okay. I am... Whew, I okay, am, that feels better. Feeling a little beat up over here. That's the other host tonight. Uh, we, we'll go ahead and give him the title of great host as well, I guess, just to even things out. Amos King. Hello, hello. How are you guys doing tonight? Well, I'm doing good, Lee. You're doing good? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. We're all doing great. We're doing great. Drinking beer, doing great. I'm not drinking any beer. I had a protein shake. It's the next best thing. You, know, you got to so. get, get calories somewhere. You know, if you let those things sit out for about a week, they taste like beer. That was my pick tonight, Lee. Doggone it. <laughs> That's so gross. Speaking of leaving things sit out tonight, we're going to talk about technical debt. <laughs> oh, that's kind of perfect. I don't know if that's a transition or not, but I just made it into one. I've been thinking a lot about technical debt recently, but it's always been something that has been rattling around in my brain. And, and I, I remember this quote from the movie, uh, The Social Network, the one about Facebook. And uh, there's, this, there's some part where they're talking about, well, when is the Facebook going to be done? And, and the, the character playing Mark Zuckerberg says, never. He says that uh, it'll never be finished, just like fashion is never finished. And because you always want something else because it's evolving, because um, it's not as perfect as you'd like it to be. And, and I guess the creation of software uh, is more of a journey than it is, I think, a, a finite state where you arrive at some finish line. And... I think that really applies when you think about technical debt as well. And I came up with these, these three phases of a project that I, I, I wanted to run past you guys where that initial phase when you first get on a project and you're, you're starting from scratch, you know, it's that race to market because you want to get something out there usable. Maybe you're releasing it in, in iterations, et cetera, but somewhere along the line, you're calling it sort of good for now where you say, this is our MVP and we're going to open it up and let users use it, sell it to customers, uh, sell subscriptions or whatever you're doing with it. Right. And then once you release it and that's your MVP, then you start this growth phase where you're adding users, you know, maybe your, your site gets really popular, your software gets really popular and you've all of a sudden got a lot of users and you're dealing with those issues. And then at some point, you hit a plateau and it levels off and then you know you're st- you still have the same number of subscriptions but now you're looking for ways to like reduce costs and cut back on development costs and those sort of things and all along those ways there are these different forces that i feel pulling on 
pulling on the process of developing the software that, that puts us into a situation where it's hard to deal with technical debt? Well, I think that if you've dealt with technical debt along the way um, correctly and you've been able to actually listen to your customers and follow the principles of Agile, you actually really don't get into sustainment. Hopefully, for really long periods of time, you just continue to grow, change features, add features, and modify to be what your users need in order to continue to increase those. And that assumes, that assumes though, that the life cycle of your product is not something that uh, has a, a sunset date even when you, when you start. And, and that's a, a, a real possibility. So you might have a, uh, a long-term plan that we've got this product that's going to go for four to five years. And after that, we're going to transition into this, into our next phase of our business rollout. And we're going to introduce this new product. But to get started, we need this first one. Right. Um, so you could have a situation like that, but it's, uh, and I guess in, in large corporations, this is more like likely to happen than like in a startup. And maybe that's, maybe that's what the Mayans were doing with the calendar. They had their first product and they were going for the second one and then just filed bankruptcy. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think died. the Mayans, I think the Mayans just, uh, I had to, had an idea that they were going to joke. Uh, it's a big joke on everybody, you know, you know, in 5,000 years, they're going to look at this and they're going to go, what happened? That is a 5,000 year calendar. Maybe he was just tired and went home. <laughs> it's all of the space I had. What do you mean? That- That's the world's longest joke. That's a long wait for the punchline. Exactly. But it's, that makes it the best. I guess. I really think that every project probably goes through these phases. Even if you are in a situation where you know that there's a finite date, um, you, you at least have, have, this sort of, you have this sort of arc in a project. Because the, most companies, let's face it, right? Most companies are not in the business of writing software for the sake of writing software. They're, they're writing software to convert uh, ideas into dollars. So, so in this, we have race to market growth and sustainment, right? So where, where do products get overtaken by competitors? Usually. Sustainment. Sustainment. No, well, that's where they or Or, or the growth. race to market, they simply lost. Well, sometimes, but I, I, I see a lot in, in growth too, is like you come up with a good idea, you race it to market, you get it there. And then in growth, other people start to outpace you. And I think a lot of that is because of technical debt in the companies that I've dealt with. It is technical debt. They race to market really fast and they get up a bunch of debt and they throw out they're testing, they throw out all of their ideals of what it is to write great software and they get into growth and they say, Oh no, we started having competitors. We need to continue to move at this pace and we continue to add on debt or we can't overcome the debt that we had in order to add the new features. We now need to go back and fix things. And so our adding new features is too slow. And the next people come along, they see our idea and they say, and we're going to do this right though. And, and they work all the way along trying to keep their technical debt as small as possible. And they never take, oh, we don't have time for an answer. They just make sure they do it right. And then they start to outpace you in that growth period and shut you down way earlier than you projected. I think it's unlikely that uh, given the same, uh, the same sort of monetary constraints that that could, that that could realistically happen. 
I think that a company could come along and throw a lot more money at a project and do it better than you with less technical debt, but not at the same cost. And regardless of that, that's, that's really not the point of, of what I was trying to discuss here. The, the point that I was trying to discuss here is that all along these phases of the project, there's, there's the opportunity for technical debt to get created. And even if, you're, even if you're good little software developers all along the way and you're doing a good job of keeping your technical debt down and you, do, you are doing a good job of cataloging and backlogging any technical debt that you incur, that there's other situations where technical debt is created that you're not even aware of it. So let's take a step back here and just mainly for listeners, but also because I'm curious as to, to what you guys are going to say. Um, let's define technical debt for those people that aren't necessarily familiar with the term or because we might have slightly different ideas of what that is. You want to take a first stab at it, uh, Amos? Sure. I, I actually have uh, kind of two ideas that I use for technical debt. And, and one of them is the known technical debt. When you consciously make a decision to do something in a way that you know isn't the best way, and you think that um, it's going to save you time to do it that way. May or may not, but you make that decision in order to save time, usually. And the other one is technical debt, the unknown unknowns, like where you have no idea that you're incurring this technical debt, um, maybe because of your knowledge or, um, or because you just haven't seen that future change. Maybe you went in the wrong direction. You thought the product was going to go one way and it went another. And so you, you architected your idea to go one way and now you've got a lot of technical debt because you really need to change the architecture in order to get the way that it really needs to go. And, and I agree with that. And I would, I would uh, add into that, that I would simplify it down to uh, a definition that goes something like anytime you make a, a compromise in order to um, do something quicker and maybe not as cleanly as you know you could do it or should do it, that that would be, be a place where you're incurring technical debt. You know, maybe you decide to take an architectural shortcut and, and uh, instead of creating a new class, you create like an inner class or something. You know, like, this thing really wants to be its own class, but I'm going to create it here just for the sake of uh, quickly releasing whatever this particular thing is, right? So it's a compromise. The speed of delivery over, over quality, internal quality of software. So I think it's interesting that, uh, John, your definition was basically what Amos called uh, conscious debt. Is that what you, the way yes. you put it? Um, with, and your definition doesn't really cover what Amos talked about as far as uh, things you don't, decisions you've made, but you don't know that they're the wrong decision at the time. Right. And I think that's a big difference. Oh, yeah, there's. I think it's it's interesting to, that we're constantly making decisions, and even if we even if we uh, look back on our own code after you know a month, we're probably going to say, uh, "I probably could have done that better." And so, and are we I, not always incurring technical debt, no matter what we do? I I think that we are um, because we don't always know everything. And this is why I personally have a real problem with with 
okay technical debt. Like we're going to do that, like a conscious technical debt. I have a real problem with it because I always think that there's a better decision if you sit back and think. And a lot of times it's uh, a habit, you know, like when people say, oh, we're not going to write tests because we need to hurry. And if you're in the habit of writing tests, you'll actually be slower if you stop. And so every time that you decide to make that conscious technical debt decision, you are slowing down future you by not being in the habit of doing the better thing than when you know it's better. Um, and because and because you know that uh, in the future you're going to have to go back and fix that, which is in in order to to continue the growth. How, how often have you been given the opportunity to go back and fix that? Almost never. And that's the right. point. And, and that's why I have huge problems with this. And and I I do this with regular debt too. Like I've I've been to financial advisors who say like, oh, borrow this money to buy this house to flip it later or to rent it out. And and I am personally like really against borrowing any more money. I've been in so much debt at one point in my life that I'm very against that. And then uh, on the flip side, unconscious technical debt is like I was telling you guys earlier today, I bought a car and I bought a used car. And then um, this afternoon, the uh, check engine light came on to me. That's so, unconscious. So when, when did you buy this car today? <laughs> so to me, that is and I even had it checked out by a mechanic. But sometimes, you know, it happens. And um but that to me is like unconscious technical debt, right? I bought this car. Everything seemed good. I even had it checked out. I even paid a little bit of money to have it checked out. So that's my, my time in, but I ended up with a problem anyway. And sometimes that happens, but I'm not going to go buy a car that is falling apart or I could have borrowed money to buy a car and had the same problem. And now I'm in even more debt because I borrowed and that's the conscious technical debt. Here's the, Here's the core issue that I want to expose and discuss now. And it, it was, it's revolving around this concept of premature, premature optimization. I think you guys have probably heard this term and talked about it on your teams in terms of how much do we optimize our code for performance, for scalability, for things like that. And the, the, the decision that we usually make is we don't want to prematurely optimize. We want to optimize the code when, when we realize that there's a performance issue. Right, because if we optimize now, we don't know what we're optimizing for. It could be unnecessary optimization, and I think that when you and I want to apply that to the concept of internal code quality. So I mentioned a little while ago the con, you know this this internal quality of code, which is how well you can maintain, read, uh, modify, extend. Your existing code is how I would how I would characterize and define internal code quality, and and the point and the point that I think we run into is similar to the performance optimization situation where you don't know what you're going to have to deal with in the future in terms of this code and it's and having to come back and maintain it or extend it, etc. And how much time are you going to spend refactoring, optimizing, and and maybe not optimizing, but refactoring and increasing the internal quality of that code when the most important thing to the business is the external quality of the code, the usability of the the software and the and and getting the software into the marketplace. So what what if your habit is to write the code the first time in the better way? 
Like, but that's not your habit because we do the easiest, we do the simplest thing that could work first. Okay. Well, here, here's, let me give an example. Um, and I think, I think Lee's done some rails possibly. I'm just going to give you like a a super simple example. Oh, well, if it's rails, it's always perfect the first time. No, 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 (laughs) that's that's BS. I was channeling Um, DHH for a second. though. (laughs) We, we've already brought him up once on the podcast. Uh, We, this is probably not a good thing to do. Um, I like to poke the bear. (laughs) So is that I was working with somebody and, uh, there was at a point where it was like, Hey, let's, let's make a new controller and, and put this functionality in a new controller. Cause it's really a new thing. And they were like, no, we're just going to throw this method in here, uh, in this other controller and just kind of tack it on. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being like, it, it seriously, it's like the overhead of creating a new class or a new file is so big in people's heads that that was going to take up too much time. So instead, they spent 10 minutes trying to figure out how to make a route for it. And then I asked them to go ahead and do it as control. And I talked them into trying it and I timed it. I timed both of them. And one of them took them 15 minutes. And then making the new controller with the route and everything working took five minutes. And it wasn't that they knew how to do it faster. It's that everything was geared towards trying to force them into the better decision. But to them in their mind was it's so much easier to just tack it in here. And I would say that that happens not just at this controller and route level, but all kinds of methods you run into a method and you're like, "Ah, it's just one little if statement and I throw it in here and it's okay. And we're good when you really should have possibly split it off. And sometimes it does take a little longer, but it is, two minutes now, three minutes now to split off this method into like two possible methods or two different objects that have uh, one method difference. Is that okay? Is it okay to spend that time? And if you're in the habit of it, will it move faster? Will you automatically go there? I think I'm going to connect this in with uh, TDD a little bit too, because that's for me, one of the biggest benefits of TDD is that um, if I'm writing tests and I find that it's easier to write a test, if uh, to to test something, if I break it out, usually um, it it actually leads me towards a uh, a better solution. It forces me to do the the better thing. But but uh, we've got to get this to market exactly real quickly. Faster. We've got to get this to market really quick, though. You can't write tests. No, we're not saying. Uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> I can that's, I can still write the test faster. That's a form of technical debt too, though, is yeah. if you're writing code without the test. And for me, yes, mm-hmm. I write the code faster if I write tests now because I've got 10 years of doing it that way. And like really and now my, that way. So in the, my, my brain works in that way in small steps now, rather yes. than trying to comprehend this huge thing that is, is this whole compli- uh, complicated story or, or feature. Now I think of it in forms of in pieces of what's the simplest thing I can test. And then it makes it much quicker for me to jump in and just do it. Well, and one of the reasons why I, I am an advocate for testing in addition to all of the other quality reasons is that it establishes a, a point of doneness. And I know that that's another component of talking about technical debt is establishing what, what your definition of done is. But it, it clearly establish, establishes a level of doneness. And if you've, I'm sure you guys have read the Mythical Man Month, 
And there's a, there's a lot of time devoted to what they call IT gold plating, where, where you continue to kind of spin on something because you, you want to perfect it, right? And, and tests and test-driven development guard against that because they give you a clear end state. And, and you, I, oh, go ahead, if you sorry. cut me off again, I'm going to punch you in the <laughs> right between the eyes. I'm just kidding. I love you. You got to drive a long way, John. I have a long arm. <laughs> what? <laughs> Go ahead. You cut Showtime. me off. <laughs> I, I, I forgot now because we, we uh-huh. talked back and forth for so long. Well, I think the, 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 the heart of this issue is that you don't always know, Amos, when the decision that you're making is an optimization that is going to save you time and when the optimization that you're making is is not going to save you time and i think you have to you have to really be diligent about sticking to your red green refactor cycles with your stories and 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 calling it done when it's done now there are technical decisions that people make along the way that some some of them are more optimal than others you referred to creating a new controller in a route as opposed to jamming a a method into an existing controller and uh, and and Lee talked about another example as well but there there are plenty of decisions that you make all of the time where you're you don't know that you're you're creating you you may be optimizing your code and increasing the internal quality where it's not going to net you any benefits I I agree and it's and it's hard to argue with what you're talking about uh, but like part of me wants to push back really, really hard because the same, the, the decisions being made, there are a lot of decisions about object oriented design or functional programming design or um, testing or any of these things that are well known to lead to good quality. And what kind of good quality? Uh, the, the ease of maintainability and so internal change quality. of the future. Internal yes. quality of the code. Yes. Which I think is really, really important if you want to stay marketable because you need to be able to change fast whenever the market changes. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, but you don't, maybe. you don't know, you don't know what's, you don't know what needs to be changed. I, I agree. And I think that certain object oriented design patterns or functional design patterns and things like that don't, limit you i'm talking about like overall design not i I shouldn't say design patterns i guess more like principles of object-oriented design principles of functional programming design Mm -hmm. is that if you follow these principles your ability to be able to move in either direction uh, or any of hundreds of directions is a lot simpler sure and and when you're in the habit of those things it's good and the same people that have a tendency to um, not go with those, those directions and not know those directions, Um, not maybe not know them, but they're not, it's not a habit for them are also the same people who have a tendency to write really horrible tests and not listen to the pain of their tests that say, Hey, I need to pull this out because they don't even realize it's there. So they'll spend 20 minutes on a test. When, if they would have split everything apart, they would have spent two minutes. Maybe, but there's, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's all, it's always that clear cut 
you know, when you're make when you're in the code and you're making those decisions, I'm not always sure that it's it's that obvious and apparent. And and I guess I jump I kind of jump to where my bottom line was, and maybe we can we can work back from that statement that tech debt is unavoidable, and you have to embrace it in the same way that we have decided in Agile to embrace change. And so in Agile, you know, we decided things change, software requirements change, people's minds change about what they want. And instead of fighting it, we're just going to embrace it. And I'm proposing the same thing here. But and I can think, we go ahead? I think, see that? I, I jumped in front of uh, an Amos. Good job, Lee. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, think, I think what Amos is, is saying, though, and, uh, and what I would say is that you, um, you do it, you write your code in such a way that you can change it. I mean, this is not a, a new thing, right? No. Um, it's not that you necessarily over uh, emphasize uh, performance or, you, or you, uh, you spend too much time on it, but you do do it with a, with a mind that you're going to have to change it in the future. I mean, what is that? I don't, know, I don't know who said it, maybe John Woods, but always code as if the guy who ends up maintaining your code will be a violent psychopath who knows where you live. <laughs> I love that. That's a scary thought. That's a good motivator. Exactly. And I'm one of those violent psychopaths. Uh-oh. Um, so so I, I agree. We, you've said technical debt is unavoidable. But there is some that is avoidable. The known technical debt. Whenever you know it's there, you're already going to take on technical debt. On accident. Every day. You're going to take on technical debt because of the unknown unknowns. You don't know what's happening out there. Now, why would you, on top of that debt that you're already going to be taking, want to consciously add more? So I think this goes... That's where I have a problem. I think this goes to um, decisions almost at a higher level than the team um, under most circumstances. This is not, this is not the case if you're talking about a self-managing team. Um, but for most situations where you've got managers that are coming down and that's where your pressure is coming from to deliver quickly, uh, they are focusing on speed rather than quality. and. Uh, I mean, this is the whole reason why we have uh, Kaizen and Kanban and these things is we come, it comes from Toyota, who said, no, we're not going to focus on how many cars we, we can shift out the door. We're going to focus on making really good cars. And to me, that's the whole point of what we're trying to do with Agile is to focus on quality and, uh, and repeatability and consistency and the fact that we can, we can maintain this indefinitely. And maintaining something, maintaining your ability to program and to code in this manner uh, indefinitely means that you have to be able to constantly deal with your tech debt as it comes and write for the future. And, and if you are in the habit of doing the best code that you can, hopefully you end up being faster at doing that than you are at consciously incurring technical debt anyway. And all of that, none of that says uh, that John is wrong. None of that says that we shouldn't, um, that, that we're going to avoid tech debt. I'm going to have on a limb. I'm going to say, John, I think you're totally wrong. Okay. That's fine. 
I hear, I hear the, I think the, the argument that, that Lee articulated is one that I, that I hear all of the time. If we don't do a quality job, we're not, you know, we're not going to have a product to support. Um, I'm, I'm a big advocate for teams to have to be self-organizing, to also be, to act as owners in terms of the software so that they're making both tactical and strategic decisions as if they were they were the ones responsible for the ownership of the business or the company or whatever, the product, right? So that they would act as owners. And if, and if we extend that a little further and imagine for a second and, and our companies treat all of our projects as if they were like internal startups where they're, they're, they're coding and creating their product as their lifeblood as opposed to just... Um, a cost center and a bucket that expends a certain amount of money every month and every year to, to generate code. And you look at it from the value perspective on, on what it is we're creating as to whether or not we're going to be able to continue to exist. It is not enough to write quality code. We have to write quality code and release things with a certain pep in our step uh, so that we're, we're constantly showing value at a, at a sustainable pace, but at a, rather quick pace. If, if we're spending too much time being focused on quality, if I'm a true startup and I spend too much time focusing on the quality of my product, I could be beaten to the market by another competitor. But I have a better product. And that could work out longer term, but there's still a lot to being said to being first into a marketplace. You know, Look at somebody like Twitter who they released a product that didn't scale very well thanks to being on Ru- written in Ruby on Rails initially. <laughs> Take that, Amos. Just kidding. I know maybe Ru- they sh- I know maybe they should have written it in JavaScript. I know Rails <laughs> scales. Yeah. But uh you know they had the fail whale all the time and all of this stuff and they incurred I'm sure a great deal of technical debt in the course of creating their MVP and getting it out in the marketplace. And I believe that they probably did that understanding that we could spend a million dollars writing a great Twitter app and a great Twitter backend engine, or we could spend $500,000 writing it, get it into the marketplace, and hopefully, and let's see if it works. And then if it works, we'll invest, we'll have more money to invest to iteratively improve, improve the product. And I think that's the key point there, John, is the money. Because I, I don't think they said, oh, yeah, we can spend a million dollars and make it great. No, they probably said, uh, we got whatever you guys yeah. got in your bank accounts right, right. now, and we got to make a product that makes us money. And that's where I, I differ is because I think that if you have a group of people, a group of developers who are practiced in trying to do the best they can at all the times, I think that they can get to market at the same speed with a higher quality product because they've made that their goal in life. And I agree with you, but I think that John's point is still well taken that uh, the tech debt, the wrong decisions are inevitable, like rails. So so why would (laughs) so why would you choose it on purpose if it's inevitable and it's going to happen anyway? Why would you pile more on? So, so I agree with you on that one, Amos, that you don't do it on purpose, but you have to adapt because you know it's going to come. That's what I'm talking about. Please don't make conscious technical debt. So I will disagree with you just, just to be the, the devil 
in the I don't room. like your face, the ad, John. The advocate, <laughs> the advocate for the devil. And, and say that there are, there are times when you have to make a hard decision that, that compromises the internal quality of the code. And it's, it's, it's probably only because it's, it's one of these life or death sort of decisions for a project where everything's on the line. And it's like, if we don't do this, we, we don't have a job tomorrow to come back and worry about writing the friggin' code. I think so, that's, oh, I, oh. I think that is completely the wrong side. The, you're in the wrong place at that point. Uh, <laughs> mentally. mentally. Um, and it may not be you, but it may be whoever is driving you. So, someone else may need to make that decision later. <laughs> and, and this, yeah, this is not, this is, this is something that, uh, that the business seems to think that is a life and death situation. And unless you're actually writing software that could kill somebody, if it's, if it goes wrong, then you're not in a life or death situation. No, you're not, but it's a life or death situation in terms of the project. Where you the chips are down, and you're saying if we don't if we don't hit this, if we don't get this out uh, with with the features that we need, you know, we won't have a job to come into tomorrow. And, 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 give me, give me and if example. you if sure. well if you were there and you were at that last possible moment, and I have to make this decision, and I just don't have enough knowledge to know how to do it right, but I can hack it in tonight and have it out there tomorrow morning, then maybe I will say. Maybe I can give that to you, but I have not been in a situation where that's actually happened and needed to happen. But I have been in a lot of situations where people have done that. And then the next week, the company comes in and says, this next thing, our jobs are gone. They're on the line. You've got to have this by tonight. And they do it with the next one and the next one and the next one. Now they have a cycle that says tech debt is the only way to move forward. And I, I don't think I have ever seen a deadline where it's, oh, we have to do this today or we never, or our jobs are gone. Unless those, it's those a legal deadline. Ar- those, those dates are arbitrary. Well, Even legal deadlines file for an appeal. There's, get a lawyer, <laughs> damn it. If you're, if you're really working in, in a business that is, that is being bootstrapped with a, a, you know, a minimum amount of of people, a minimum amount of, of cap working capital. There, there are deadlines that involve things like we have no more money. And if we, if we run out of money before we have a minimally viable product, we go, we all go home without a job, without any more income. And we, we have no future chance to improve this product. So, so I, I want to argue that a little bit. Um, but not from a technical standpoint. So a couple of years ago, I started my own business. And at one point I spent four months without a client and I was hurting and I was scared and I had like nearly no money left. And I thought, holy cow, I actually had about two months. I thought I've got to take any client that I can. I just got to take them. And I had been refusing clients for the same reason that I want to refuse technical debts because I want to move forward and I want to enjoy. And I said, I'm not doing that anymore. I am. I will find ways to cut budget. I will find time. I will find this. I will find that. I will talk to more people. I started making different goals for myself and I made it two more months. And because of that, I got a much better client than my options were at the beginning at a much higher rate and actually made more money than I would have if I had accepted the clients that were offered to me at the two month point when I started freaking out. 
and I don't, and I, I don't see how that is relates to this discussion. Because I think that there are other options. Whenever you get to that point where you're like, holy cow, if we don't get this out, we probably aren't going to have a job tomorrow. You had money. You're saying you have zero dollars. I'm saying I'm saying you you're you're running up against a dead a deadline that involves the bank. We our bank account runs dry. If we can't, they're get, gonna they're gonna shut out the lights. We no longer have power tomorrow. If if uh, if we don't have money, they're or, gonna or in a in a week, and we we've, we've got a lead time where we've got to get a product out. I see where he's going with that. They're, I think they're that, gonna turn, that's a well, really can, rare occasion. Cut features and shrink the product. Or is it like if I don't have a if I don't have um, it's a minimal a product username validation tomorrow we're shit out of luck we're bootstrapping a, we're we're bootstrapping a very lean product and we have a minimal viable product to find that our market research tells us that this is what we need to get out of there in place can we go out there with less of course we can but we 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 want to get this out there because this is what we believe is is going to be the saleable product. And it, I think you almost always have other options. You do. You can go to market with with less. Yep. But and, why not? And if less gets you a little money and gets you another week to get better, more. See, I think and, that I think that that's that's the opinion of somebody that doesn't have their quarter of a million dollars on out on the on the line. You know, and I, I think that that's something that we as developers have really have to con- have to put ourselves in those people's shoes when we think when we make decisions day to day about acting this is this is the part where we we need to act as an owner and it's it's a lot of lip service in some of these really big companies to tell people to act as owners because they're so far away from being an owner that it's ridiculous <laughs> however if you really act like an owner and you pretend that every hour and dollar spent is coming out of your bank account, you really start to make decisions in a different way. When Amos, you're worried about you know, running out of money in your bank account, you start to panic and behave differently. I, I agree. And whenever you're panicking like that is whenever you need to take a step back and make sure you're making the right decision and not a decision out of fear. But you need to, you need to be focused on you were focused, very sharply focused on finding the right client for the right amount of money. Look at that in the same way of, of doing, the soft, doing software development for this, this, this fake company that we're talking about, where you have to be focused on writing exactly the right stuff, spending the barest of minimum amount of time on it to get it good enough to get it into the marketplace. And, and that's where I start to talk about you know, you had the minimal viable product. Is it really minimal viable? And could I get something else out the door to start a little bit of money rolling in so that I can make a higher quality even a week or a month later? And is that worth it? And I think there's a lot of guesswork there. And ultimately, you have to do whatever the the business decides. But I think that there are a lot of decisions that I see out there in the marketplace that are made out of complete fear of we have to have this the day that we release when really if we could move that one back a week and release beforehand, we could still get some money coming in and release that next one next week. So and if you continue to release new features slowly like that, it seems to build user base very quickly because they want to see the next thing and it makes them excited. So on one hand, we, 
we say we need to focus, we need to be lean, we need to we need to focus on quality, and then everybody turns around and goes back to hip chat or Slack and into the cat channel and posting cat jokes and links to YouTube videos and hitting each other in the side of the head with Nerf balls and the rest of that shit. Well, and that's screwed up too. <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're at a point that you're trying to decide between technical debt and jamming something out the door real fast and and having a job when you're down there making those hard decisions, you can't be screwing around. But every day is a hard decision. Every day is an is a unique opportunity to advance the project towards success. Or it's an opportunity for you to jack around and watch YouTube videos and troll re- troll people on Reddit and shit like that. And I'm not saying that a bit of that every day is okay because we're humans and we can't sit there and focus you know, for seven or eight hours straight. But I just, I see too many people that are so lackadaisical about it. And then they're the first one. And then they're also the first ones to stand up and say, I don't want to be measured. I don't, I don't want my work to be tracked because quality and it takes time to write quality software and cut features, Mr. Mr. Uh, Business owner, cut the features back because we're focusing on quality. Now give me that ball back so I can hit you in the ass with it again. You know? It sounds like uh, you're having some issues around this. Are you, John? This is my, this is, this is 20 years of software development. Seeing this, you know, the XKCD cartoon of the guy sword fighting in the hallway. My compiling. code is compiling, you right. know, but it's, it, it's it's nothing it's nothing that has happened recently it's just that this is 20 years worth of angst built up that I'm dumping on you and Amos tonight Lee <laughs> That's okay it's okay because I feel the pain I I put myself in the situation where I project myself into the position of this is my money if I was paying this group of people to be writing software with my money you know, I would want to be damn sure that we were we were doing everything in our power to do just just high enough quality software to get this out the door, and and not anything more. And and I I frequently make decisions like that, and I have people that work well. I work for other clients, but I always want my people to do the best work that they can, right? even though I'm working on someone else's product and not mine, my product is the people and what we're doing. And I want them to go out there and do the best that they can. And that's where I have such a big problem with this is that so often I see people accepting technical debt because they think it's faster, but it really hasn't been faster to get it done. They could actually get it done quicker by doing it without accepting the debt. So the conscious exception of debt without like, I think that any time that you're going to accept some technical debt, it should be a big freaking struggle in your head. It should not be a two minute decision. It should be a team 20 minute discussion or longer because there are all these decisions to make technical debt on the fly that are made in 30 seconds by people who are not really there to make the decision. They're just like throwing stuff out. And I don't want those people working for me or with me or on any product that I ever make. There's enough technical debt out there that is unknown that you just happen upon that you, that I 
I want you to fight tooth and nail to not accept any. And and I'm not I'm definitely not advocating for spending a, an inordinate amount of time uh, avoiding the accumulation of technical debt. Nor am I nor am I saying that we should cut all corners in order to quickly get everything done. What I, what I'm really getting to is that you are going to have to make some compromises in certain areas, but you need to be level headed about where those compromises are, and really evaluate. You know, is it is it worthwhile or not? Can I do it the right way? Spend an extra thirty minutes on it and do it the right way. You know, not 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 cut out of here right on time. Maybe I stay twenty or thirty minutes later and get get the thing done correctly. Or do I do I make a calculated decision where I say I'm I'm scoring this as some technical debt. I'll write a card for it and and maybe I'll try and come back to it. But and, and I would also say that there's in most of those cases. Even if you are deciding, okay, I'm not going to do the complete version of what this is, of what the, the best answer is, but there's probably a better answer than just do it as quickly as possible. So if it takes me 30 minutes to do something, I could probably spend 40 and do it a lot better. Maybe not perfect. Not, not something that would take me an hour. I have never run into, what did you call it? Golden something, John? Gold plating. Gold plating. I've never run into that actually being an issue. Normally people are way too freaking lazy to get to that point. Well, you're, you're fortunate because I've seen people that hold on to stories because they're comfortable with it and because it's just not quite right. I had a guy that worked for me once and we'd ask him, are you done with that yet? And, and He'd say, yeah, I'm done with it. And then you say, no, are you done done? Because then he would sit there and twiddle with it. Uh, and, you know, it's like, <laughs> so, so no, let's I redefine what done is for you because you're going to sit there for another three hours and twiddle with it. I try to solve that by frequent pair switching. And maybe that's why I haven't run into it is because I force people to try to switch so frequently that nobody gets to own anything long enough to, to try to gold plate it. So I have a, I have a story. I think I may have used this on the, uh, on the podcast previously, but um, when I was a kid, uh, I did oil painting oh. and my, my teacher, uh, one of her, uh, uh, one of her mantras was don't make mud. And what she meant by that was the more you screw with something, if you're not quite happy with it and you keep trying to, to fix it, you end up combining all these colors and you end up just with this mud color that you never wanted anyway. So the more you screw with it, there comes a point where you're just going to be making it worse. And, uh, and I think that's my, uh, my attitude with coding too, is don't make mud. There's a point where it's, it's really good and it's good enough. Stop there. This week's hottest picks. Okay, Lee, you're up first with your picks this episode. Okay, so I have two picks. Uh, one is uh, a serious pick. This, uh, you know, that's rare for me, serious pick. Yeah. So yeah. I uh, found uh, Joanna Rothman, which I guess people in Agile probably know of her. Um, but she's got a great, uh, a great blog specifically on managing product development. And uh, it's at uh, jrothman.com. Uh, so go check her out. 
In, in particular, she just finished the five-part series on resource efficiency versus flow efficiency that's really good. So definitely go check that out. Um, also, uh, a while back, probably a couple of months ago, uh, College Humor, which is a, a YouTube channel uh, where they do skit comedy, they did a little piece on Apple's latest in innovation, copying Spotify, and it's hilarious. So there's a link to it in the, in the show notes. Love it. I watched it before we, we started the show. It's great. Checked. You need, you need to spend the three or four minutes to watch that video. Okay, Amos, what are your picks for our episode today? Oh, uh, okay. So I've got to have an adult pick. I've been, I've been told that by Joe. Adult beverage. Adult beverage pick. pick. Not an adult pick. We, we won't right. go X-rated or anything. We don't um, lose our clean <laughs> rating. Normally, I, I pick a beer. Um, but uh, my wife and I are in a wine club where we get to get we get six wines plus a twenty percent discount when we buy wines from a winery here in Missouri called St. James Winery, and uh, I keep going back and buying this bottle of wine over and over. It's a, a 2013, I think it might be a 14 Estate Norton from St. James Winery, and the Norton grape I believe is only in the Missouri Ozark re region, but it's a really nice red dry wine um with like a a mild oaky flavor that even people who don't like really dry wines have seemed to enjoy um i love dry wines i can't stand wines that taste like sugar and then my second pick is a book that i have uh i got it in like a bundle package so i got it real cheap it's called snip burn solder shred seriously geeky stuff to make with your kids um it's just been like a really cool book and I haven't even, I'm, I'm going to confess, haven't made anything out of this book with my kids, but I, one of the things in there is to build a, uh, like a guitar amplifier out of a cigar box and, um, some small components. So I'm going to build an amplifier. They even have like how to make a one string, guitar out of some wood that you can hook up to this amplifier and a, something that Lee will like. One of the projects is to make your own go board with your kids. <laughs> cool. Uh, and, and so it's, it's got something for everybody and it's been a pretty cool book just to even look through. So, so I have to add something to your St. James winery. I actually really like the St. James stuff and which is mostly is that sweet stuff that you hate. Um, <laughs> And so I have to say, for those people that like sweeter wines, they have a 2013 uh, Vignoles that's excellent. Yes, it is. My wife gets that. Um, and I was in uh, California this summer in wine country in California, and I saw their St. James wine being sold um, at some of the wine stores around there. So it's it's pretty popular all over. So you should be able to get it in your area. If not, you can order from them online. They do ship all over the nation. We're not going to turn this into a snooty wine picks podcast. No, I think next time I'm going to pick a Nat Light or a 30 of Stones. Or, or some, uh, I was thinking Mad Dog 2020. Ooh, ooh yes. <laughs> Boone's Farm. The bottle you drink before you begin to drink. <laughs> Okay, I have the last pick tonight, and mine is called, my pick is an article called The Science Behind Why Jeff Bezos' Two Pizza Team Rule Works. 
Uh, and this is some science around why communication is difficult as as teams scale beyond beyond the realm in which two pizzas can feed the team. And I have this I have this uh, funky way of trying to explain this concept to enterprises when I, when I'm coaching them there, but. Uh, this this article does a much better job of explaining it than my my funky metaphor does. So I'm I'm trying to transition to swapping out uh, my metaphor for this two two pizzas per team metaphor, where instead of making teams larger, you make a number of teams that are smaller and give them give them autonomy and discrete sets of responsibility and and allow them to um, to work in, in a and communicate as a small group rather than trying to scale a group into a really large set. So there's some, what if, go ahead. What if Lee. they're really pigs and they eat lots and lots of pizza? And do you have to have a smaller number of people on the team? Hmm. We can make an exception in that case, but there has to be a certification of their pig status and pizza eating. Oh, can we sell that certification? Of we can course. be like, we can be like, <laughs> The scrum people. No, it's already part of uh, the scrum alliance. <laughs> oh, oh, they they have a pig certification. They have a certification for that. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're never going to get back invited to called, another conference. It's called Scrum Master, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Can we get a this Agile Life certification? I think that we, we have, need to have a conference and a this Agile Life certification. We have three levels of certification for the this Agile Life project. And if you go to our website, Amos, thisagilelife.com, and Click on join the community. You can get one of our three levels of certification. And it'll only cost you money. Simply by (laughs) simply through a monthly donation to this program. So I would encourage everyone to go out there and get their This Agile Life certification. And Jason Tice will be very happy because then we have a business model and a business plan as to how to make money. (laughs) And he can he can start a spreadsheet or something. That'll make him happy. All right, that's all we have for today, guys. Check out thisagilelife.com for these show notes and all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening, and keep living this agile life. Too much Tice. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community. 